At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is Make It Plain. M.I.P. With Masamela Matsumo. Mark Thompson. Make It Plain. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, it has been a minute since we've had a chance to talk with our good friend, the founder of Daily Coast and Civics with a Q, Marcos. For Thursday Coast. He's been traveling. I've been traveling, but we're back in the saddle. We're doing this and a lot to talk about. Marcos, welcome back, buddy. How are you? I'm doing um I'm doing great. I, it's uh I don't want to be too excited because we got this war and we got this crap going on in the Senate. And I don't want to make it seem like everything's wonderful, but like personally things are going pretty well. Can't complain. Good. Good. And uh, everybody's healthy and Good. focused on the task at hand. Glad to hear. Uh, let's start with the Senate and the confirmation hearings. The the Republicans. So I want to do it in this context, too, because you and I have been talking about what the midterms will look like. I'm beginning to think that the Republicans treatment of Katanji Brown Jackson uh, might be a motivator to the polls. Uh, the way they are attacking her, the way they are screaming at her is very shrill. Uh, I, I think while they see that as mobilizing their base and getting on their social media, getting looks and clicks and likes, I think that that might also mobilize our base a little bit more. I mean, there's a lot of, clearly there's a lot of preening for their own fundraising efforts in their 2024 presidential ambitions, you know, the Ted Cruz's doing their thing Lindsey Graham. Um, I don't know what's going to motivate our base, to be honest. It's, it's, we, we, there's so much to material for us to work with that come, come this summer, if, if, and when the Supreme court eliminates Roe v. Wade, I think that may actually have a bigger impact, but I, you're right. A lot of this goes both, both ways, right? So yeah, Republicans are going to play those clips for their base but if Democrats and allies are smart, they're going to also be replaying those clips uh, and targeting that at specific segments, you know, the black community to let them know this is what the Republican Party stands for. Mark, I didn't even know this. There are no confirmation hearings for Supreme Court justices until when it was all white Christian men. It was when you had the first Jewish uh, nominee 
that was the first confirmation hearing. And clearly, um, Republicans know they can't stop this. And people like Lindsey Graham, who are in hysterics right now, actually voted for her last year. So, uh, you know, curious that that it was okay last year, but now she's too radical and and crazy for him that he's just literally like has the vapors. But um, it's it's a target rich environment. And so what will play in 2020, 2022, I I say that like if it's (laughs) in the future, what will play this November is is really up in the air. But I really do hope that people are paying attention and that they're motivated by this, Um, because what I'm getting out of the Supreme Court hearings and even the Supreme Court's actions is that it is even more important than ever for us to win a bigger majority, a real majority in the Senate last next uh, this November, as well as holding the House so that we can expand the Supreme Court and uh, and stop this uh, hyper partisan court. I mean, you have a court that basically said that a, a v Voting Rights Act challenge to the Alabama maps uh, had to be stopped because it was too close to the election. And just yesterday, using the shadow docket, so they didn't even have to explain themselves, they actually blocked the Wisconsin maps under the similar VRA uh, argument. So Alabama, no, it's because it, it, it would benefit Democrats. It's too close to the election. But the Wisconsin map, which benefits Democrats, oh, no, let's let's stop that and let's throw it up all in the air. So this is a court that is hypocritical, doesn't care about hypo- being hypocritical, is using a shadow dock so they don't even have to issue um, rulings. They don't even have to explain themselves at this point. The shadow dock basically means they issue an order without an opinion. And it is, it is unconscionable that that's happening. And we absolutely, I, I used to think that we had all these priorities. We obviously have a lot of priorities if we expand our, our majorities in Congress. Tough act. We all, we all acknowledge it's, it's going to be very difficult. But the number one thing we need to do, and I'm not sure Democrats are ready for this, the number one thing we need to do is expand the Supreme Court. Because without that, anything that we do is going to get thrown out by this, by this uh, um, radical, hyper-partisan court, whether it's voting, rack, voting rights, whether it's statehood for D.C., whether it's any of this stuff, the Supreme Court will throw it out. So unless we address that by expanding the court and adding term limits, unless we do that, um, there is no Democratic agenda. So first things first, yeah, I hope uh, conservatives, Republicans have done a good job over the last few decades of electorally motivating themselves around the Supreme Court. For whatever reason, liberals can't do it. I don't understand it. We try. Liberals don't get worked up about the Supreme Court when literally the Supreme Court is the biggest enemy of the nation right now. We could have all the majorities. We could have the White House. We could have super majorities in the Congress. Would not matter with the Supreme Court. That question came up during the hearings, too, uh, how she felt about expansion. And, of course, she was smart enough not to. Uh, respond to that. It's not her job anyway. <laughs> it's not. Well, none of what the Republicans have asked yeah, her of course. was appropriate. Should we have more police? Should we stop murders and rapes in this country? What kind of... <laughs> this is the problem with giving you, you know, everybody their, their time to right. preen before the cameras as opposed to actually... It's, this is not a confirmation hearing. 
This is air your grievances <laughs> hearing. So I didn't know that there were no confirmation hearings originally. Yeah, I just found that out yesterday. So the people just got nominated. They just voted them up or down, I guess. Huh? Yeah, yeah. And most people, they didn't vote down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just kind yeah, of. Yeah, no. I mean, they're, just... they're white men, Christians. I mean, they, they were all part of the same country club. Yeah. I mean, everybody out in the North. Northeast, right? That little, that you know, a little pocket of elite. They probably all went to school together. More MIP after this message. Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save money on your insurance? Of course you would. After all, who wouldn't love a great deal, right? And when it comes to great rates on insurance for all of the things in your life, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners, condo, or renters coverage. You could save even more with a special discount when you bundle your coverages. Plus, add the easy-to-use Geico mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more. And choosing to switch to Geico becomes an easy choice. Switch to and see all the ways you could save with great rates and discounts. It's easy. Simply go to geico.com to get a rate quote or contact your local agent and get started seeing how much you could save. But that's why I'm wondering, to your point, you're right. Uh, our side has never gotten excited about judgeships. Uh, to our detriment. But I'm beginning to wonder the responses that I'm seeing um, in terms of the way she's being treated and confronted. I'm seeing more of an interest and, and hopefully that translates yeah. not only into the polls, but long term people taking more of an interest in, in the courts. And this is where social media hopefully will, will help because it won't be it. Maybe it won't be memory hold, right? And we know that in politics, six months is an eternity um, as far as memory is concerned. But, you know, bring the stuff back up again in November. Remind, remind voters what Republicans stand for and how they treat right. women right. of color. Because um, they came in saying, oh, we're not going to treat you like Democrats treated Kavanaugh. Like, that was terrible. And then they've gone so far beyond uh, Kavanaugh. There, there was a foundation and basis for the questioning that Kavanaugh received. There's nothing um, here, they, they, Republicans have nothing, so they're screaming about racist books and CRT and whatever nonsense they could come up with. I mean, there's times where you don't even know what the heck they're babbling about. You know, it's like, it's what, what, Godforsaken conspiracy have they pulled out from QAnon forums and they're, you know, they're blabbing about it's it's that nonsensical at times. Well, that's the other thing. What is the fixation with with pedophilia? Have you figured that out? I mean, it's almost as if they're projecting. Marcos, everybody's involved in pedophilia. She's covering up pedophilia. She's not prosecuting pedophilia. Hillary Clinton was a pedophile. They were running a pedophile ring out of a pizza joint. What is the right and QAnon's obsession with pedophilia in the first place? Uh, projection, <laughs> for one. I mean, it's Matt Gates and company that are the ones that are uh, are engaging in that kind of behavior. But it, it's it's pedophilia is like the worst thing possible. So if you want to rally people around like the, the greatest atrocity possible in this country, aside from genocide, but pedophilia is just so viscerally horrifying that it's, it's, it's a great foundation upon which to build a sort of, uh, you know, castle of lies. Yeah. That it's, 
under almost understandable that you may see that in QAnon because they're all they're all gone and crazy and they're gonna you know they're talking about lizard people and and uh, and um, um, the stuff with the clouds you know the the poisoning with the clouds why can't I think of the the name of that but um, they throw they throw all the stuff out against the wall and it's just this big massive conspiracy but it's jumped over to the mainstream Republican Party that's that's where things get really dangerous yeah. Um, you have been, what, what, before I leave Jackson though, we shouldn't really have any concern about her being confirmed. Right. Uh, I mean, if we don't have any, in, any reason to believe mansion cinema will bolt, do we? Uh, we haven't seen anything that suggests that, that they will bolt. And we also haven't seen anything that suggests that Collins and Murkowski will not vote for her. So okay. we may, we, you know, we can actually lose one of our Democrats as things stand right now. Um, it seems like, like the votes are, are not only are they there, but we actually have a little bit of a cushion. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's a relief to know. History will be made. Um, the headline at daily coast, uh, day three of obnoxious Republicans for Supreme court nominee, Ketanji Brown Jackson. Another right, I think it was Aaron Rupar wrote that Lindsey Graham promised this confirmation hearing would not be a circus, and then he laced up his own clown shoes. Uh, <laughs> so that's what we're dealing with. So you have been writing uh, a great deal about Ukraine and covering that. Um, what is what's what's the latest? It appears that. Russia may have shot its is wide. So I'm gonna um I just step back a little bit and just brag a little bit. I think Daily Coast has some of the best coverage of the Ukrainian war in in um in the English language. And not only do I have a great, you know, number of writers that have been great about it, but um I there are very few sort of liberal journalists or journalists of any kind that actually have military experience. And I was I was in the U.S. Army. I was in combat arms. I served as command and control in an artillery unit. So there's a there's a difference between looking at units in the map and then saying things like, you know, right now it's very cliche where amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics, and they don't sort of understand what how that translates to what's happening on the ground. I was on the ground. I was in what I I was literally managing logistics for a MLRS missile battery. So. I can see what's happening on the battlefield and I have that, that, that practical on the ground experience that even generals do not have. Generals aren't sitting there trying to make sure that, that their missile batteries are getting ammunition, fuel, me me uh, mechanical parts, repair parts, uh, mechanics, towing and uh, medical care and all of those things, right? That was sort of my job. And it's, it seems very, it's like the, the stock boy at the supermarket, right? Nobody thinks about how do you get a supermarket full of food? It is, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy, right? You walk into the supermarket, all the stocks, you know, all the shelves are stocked and God forbid there's a shelf that isn't stocked, right? You know, your life is almost over. And uh, so having that understanding, I think really informs it, right? And so the biggest overall piece, and I've been stressing this time and time again, because I do not see it in media coverage anywhere is that 190,000 soldiers sounds like a lot, 
because th everybody thinks, okay, it's about 190,000 people with rifles and tanks and uh, mechanized infantry and artillery, right? They think all these people are shooting stuff. The reality of a military operation is that only 15% of soldiers actually fire anything. 85% are logistics. So in my missile battery, we had nine missile launchers, nine missile launchers. We had 54 vehicles supporting those nine missile launchers. Those nine missile launchers had three crew members each. So 27 soldiers in our missile battery that actually pressed a button that fired anything. There was over 300 soldiers in that entire uh, battery. Mechanics, fuel people, uh, um, uh, medics, people who repaired the radios because the radios are always broken, uh, command and control, which is what I did. The, the supply trucks, the ammo trucks. I mean, there is an entire massive infrastructure that you need to support something like a missile battery. And so I've been watching very closely these units in, in Ukraine. And sometimes you'll see these videos of a car driving past an entire column, whether it's an artillery column, whether it's a mechanized infantry. And I sit there and I count the trucks, I count all the vehicles. And it is uncanny how it always ends up being about 15% of the vehicles are, um, are, are actual combat troops and 85% are support. And I actually came across a NATO document that really analyzed the structure of Russian units. And it, it always comes back to the same, a Russian battalion tactical group. That's the main battle unit of a Russian army right now, BTGs. If you look at any map with units, you'll see BTG. The BG, BTG is six to 800 soldiers. Of that, only 100 of them are mounted infantry. All the others are, again, support. So you're talking, you know, you do the math, we're back to 15, you know, 15% roughly. More MIP after this message. So when you're looking at 190,000 troops invading, it's not 190,000 people with guns invading. It's about 25,000. 25,000 invading a country of 40 million people. On top of that, Russia invaded from four different locations, from the north, uh, attacking Kiev, from the south, through Kherson, trying to get to Odessa, from the east, the, the occupied Donbas, uh, separatist region of Ukraine, and from the northwest, which is Kherson, uh, sorry, Kharkiv and Sumy. These are all cities on the Russian border. And so you take what is, what, 25,000 actual combat troops and you divide them into four then each one of those axes is divided into multiple lines of attack and the, the last i looked there's about 14 different areas of attack right now so you're talking about a thousand to two thousand troops per line of attack and then so if you're wondering why hasn't russia taken a single city on its border not one well you don't have to worry about supply lines Right? Everybody's talking, oh, supply lines, Russia's supply lines. Yeah, supply lines are a problem. But if you're attacking a city on the border where the artillery is literally on Russian territory, there's no supply line issues at that point. They still can't take those cities. Why? Because they got like a thousand troops trying to take cities of half a million. So that's what that's the piece people don't quite understand is just how difficult it is to move an army, how much of that army is support and logistics and how inadequate it has 
Russians have uh, supplied each one of those lines of attack. Had they attacked just from the east or just on the Kiev, things may look differently, but they didn't. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, what Marcos has just revealed is quite profound. I knew nothing about this. You know, you see 190,000, you think 190,000. So what you say, what you share with us is very, very enlightening, Marcos. If you know that, clearly Putin knows that. So what is his deal? Now, even before you said that, it seemed to me that he's being rather reckless um, with his army and with his plan and all of that. Uh, before we do that, though, just in terms of numbers, in fairness, contrast the Ukrainian numbers. So how many troops do they have? And are they even more bolstered logistically because they they've got home field advantage? Yeah, that's that's the bottom line is that uh, Ukraine, Ukraine has about 200,000 in its regular army. They called up another 200,000 reservists, which from what I can tell, have not been deployed. They're probably out in Western Ukraine training uh, and getting ready. Uh, they had 80,000, 60,000 border guards, which are actually basically essentially combat troops. They're fighting. Um, then they have the territorial defense forces, which are just local militia. They just gave them some rifles and they're doing a lot of damage because they're the guys doing the, the, uh, the ambushes behind enemy lines. Um, harassing those supply lines, those Russian supply lines. So they got, you know, I think once all is said and done and everybody's is mobilized, so I have about 700,000 troops to defend. It is a lot easier to defend. It is a lot easier to defend. Logistically, it's easier. You don't have to, you're not moving, you know, vehicles around, so you don't have to move as much fuel. You can set up prepared defenses to protect yourself. So the defender always in military operations has the advantage. So what what Putin clearly tried to do is he tried to shock shock and awe Ukraine into submission, right? First of all, I think he believed the nonsense that that Ukrainians didn't have a national identity. He wrote this whole essay about how Ukrainians don't have a national identity. They're actually Russian. And so he thought they were going to waltz in and they were going to be welcomed. There's some credible reports that Putin expected half of the Ukrainian army to defect immediately defect. So they thought they were going to get a couple, maybe 100,000 extra troops just by waltzing in. Then by attacking from four, four different locations, um, I'm assuming that Putin thought that it would like, Ukraine would be like, ah, they're attacking us from everywhere. We're, we're surrounded. And that just the thought of being surrounded was going to be enough to force a capitulation or at least a withdrawal to Western Ukraine which uh, is much more defensible from a terrain perspective. It's got mountains. It's it's and it's uh, Ukrainian speaking. It's not Russian speaking like the East. So there's a, I think there's an assumption that you push them west and then you grab all this territory in eastern Ukraine and then even at that point you can declare victory and just swallow half of Ukraine, including most of its uh, most of its agriculture and most of its uh, heavy industry. So um, that was sort of the intent and. Obviously, when you're when you're a long running dictator, you, you purge your inner circle of anybody that has any any dissenting thought. And here you have Putin, who's this murderous dictator with a history of throwing out opponents out windows, you know, time and time again. Uh, who has written a whole essay about how Ukraine isn't even Ukraine. Ukraine is Russia. Who's going to tell him like, you know, sorry, Mr. 
Putin, it's, it's <laughs> they, they may actually fight back and, and we don't have the troops to actually truly shock and awe them. So I was counting, I was counting on the first night, there was about, there's about 300 missile and airstrikes in Ukraine. That was like the first like shock and awe of the Russians. The first night, the first 24 hours of the US invasion of Iraq, there was 2000. So from the very beginning, it did not look like what the United States can deliver. And, and that's aside from the morality of the Iraq war, right? I mean, we, we very much established that we were very much against that war from the beginning. But the U.S. has capabilities that Russia can't even dream of having. And that's what we've seen so far this war, right? So um, they just they, they thought it would, they would collapse. It. And that, I think that's why they attacked from four different places. But when that didn't happen, they still haven't adjusted. They've still kept to that plan. And I'm not sure even how you can adjust it. And we can, I, I mean, I've been writing like crazy if anybody's interested at Daily Coast, just about how Russian units are um, formulated, how they're formed, how they're organized, and how that diminishes their ability to engage in offensive actions effectively. Big part of it is that the whole army has been grifted to death. Oligarchs have grifted, delivering weapons that don't work. Um, Russian commanders grift and sell fuel and parts and even vehicles so they can buy their their uh, they can buy their dachas by the lake. The uh, down at the unit level, lower officials, lower officials, they're doing their own grift there so they can even survive because they're paid so so you know crappily. So the way it's organized, each sort of division had a unit it was divided in a way that there's there's you know a division has four btgs battalion tactical groups we talked about those you could keep one in great condition so if it got shipped off to syria or if it got shipped off to one of the you know former soviet republics you can say like yeah we still have a working military but the other three were totally bereft of parts and supplies and stuff because that was where the grift was happening and it was designed this way on purpose to enable that grift and now you send all of them into Ukraine and they're under-resourced, under-fueled, under, under... I mean, you're seeing... Now you're seeing new troops showing up with World War I-era machine guns. World War One, Not two. One. Hundred-year-old weapons on the front in Ukraine. So that is how pathetic the Russian army is. And so Ru Putin thought he was going to show the world how, you know, Putin was pissed off because the U.S. was reorienting itself against China. Like China was the real threat. And Putin's like, no, Russia's still number two in the world. And we're, we are the counter to the United States. And all they're showing is that it, they're, it's really sad and pathetic and they grifted themselves into irrelevancy. And if they didn't have a nuclear arsenal, um, you know, they'd be nothing. So, I mean, I mean again, he, he's made a fool out of himself. He's exposed what he yeah. isn't. So what is what was the real purpose or the agenda? Did he really think he could do something? Oh, he thought so. Yeah. Yeah. He believed the hype about Russia being a global power. So was there no one around him to say, hey, dude, you, you need to hold up for a minute. Slow your roll. Or, or did he kill those people? Oh, here he killed those people. You know, one of the sort of um, interesting um, sort of stories out of the out of this whole war, going back to the war, back in the after the Soviet Union broke up, um, they had a Putin's first defense minister actually was aggressively um, enforcing the quality 
of Russian military equipment that was coming from the oligarch arms dealers, right? He was making, he was demanding that they deliver stuff that worked and it was working. The military was getting better. Problem is oligarchs didn't like that, right? Cause they kind of hard to skim when you have to deliver what you're getting, you know, what they're paying you for. So they had him ousted. And then the new guy came in, the guy who was the defense minister today, he's been around for 20 some years and you don't get to hang around for 20 some years in the Kremlin unless you're doing everybody's bidding, right? And so he was more than happy to look the other way as, his, as the oligarchs delivered crap equipment to the Russian army. And one place that we're seeing it right now is the Russian Air Force. They're supposed to have 3,500 aircraft. Um, and we're seeing them fly maybe 30 sorties over Ukraine every single day. I mean, it is unbelievably pathetic how absent the Russian Air Force. And that's one of the big mysteries of this war is what happened to the Russian Air Force. I'll tell you what happened to the Russian Air Force. They don't have fuel because they sold it for vodka. They don't have the planes don't fly because they were delivered crap, um, crap equipment. And the stuff that they did have, they don't have the parts for. So every day, if you look at the chart, there's charts of showing how many sorties every day. And it's on a downward trajectory. They can fly less and less planes every single day. There is no Russian Air Force. And that is one of the biggest shocks of, uh, of, of, the, uh, of the war because they spent a lot of money supposedly modernizing that air force and these on paper they have a a what's called a near peer air force that that means somebody that can actually challenge the united states on paper not anymore so now i, I can't let that go by you said that they sold some of the, the air force for vodka oh yeah so I, I think you need to kind of walk explain that to us what do you they have a shortage oh. of vodka or i mean what they get paid so little and their lives are such shit that vodka is the escape. It's it's so they will literally drink. Uh, they will sell diesel. It was happening in Belarus uh, when they were doing their military exercises before the war, where there was talk about how they were selling their diesel to in the black market in order to have money to buy. And they don't say what they're going to buy, but they're going to buy vodka and other things. Right. But <laughs> vodka, it's so bad. Mark, one of the, Funniest pictures I saw out of the war was a captured artillery cannon. And there's literally a sign on it that says, do not drink the antifreeze, it will kill you. They literally have to put that sign under vehicles because their troops are so, I don't know if they're alcoholics or they're dumb or, or cause this is, this is the lowest underclass of Russian society. They're not sending the elites from Moscow, right? This is from the hinterlands, mostly minorities. Um, last I saw, ethnic Russians were only about 15% of the, of the casualties in, in Ukraine, right? So Putin's not sending the Moscow, um, you know, Russian, Russian people to it. It's, he's sending Chechens and he's sending Tartars and he's sending uh, all, you know, up from the far, far east of the country. And, uh, and yeah, so whether it's stupidity, ignorance, or they're just addicts or whatever, they will literally drink the antifreeze uh, to get to get high, drunk, whatever, whatever that does. Um, apparently kill you because they have to put signs that say <laughs> do not drink it. But they would actually. And this has always been this has been a story time and memorial in Soviet times. They talked about how the the Russian um, not the Russian, the Soviet Air Force had trouble going airborne because the troops would actually drink the the de-icing alcohol out in Siberian airfields. It's un unbelievable. But we've also heard that some of these troops, and, and this may 
this is a valid follow-up question, I think, based on what you described. Some of these jokers went into Ukraine and claimed they didn't know what they were going there to do and immediately surrendered, didn't they? Yeah, a lot of them did. But you can actually see the difference when they first went in. If you look at video from the first week of the war, you see Ukrainian civilians going up to Russian soldiers and yelling at them. Because these Russians were told they were going in there, they were going to be greeted and, and with flowers, and it was a peacekeeping mission. And so you had all these videos of civilians going up and yelling at Russian soldiers. And these Russian soldiers were always like a little surprised and a little taken aback. And um, you don't see that anymore. You can't be a civilian and just walk up to a Russian tank anymore, which is what they were doing at the beginning. Now they shoot you. Now they're like, okay, this is, this is actually a real war. Uh, so you can even see by the behavior of those invading Russian troops that they had no idea they were actually walking into, into a war zone. And clearly, I mean, that does a couple of things. One is they're not prepared to defend themselves as well. So it probably led to a great number of early casualties. Uh, probably helped Ukraine because had they been in a more combat state of mind, they might have, you know, you, you walk in. If you're a, like if you're a cop, you walk into a house. You think there's somebody in it. You're going to walk differently than if you think there's people in there with a gun, right? There, it's just a different frame of mind, awareness, the way you hold your weapon, all those things. You, you just approach it differently. But um, second of all, they don't know why they're there. They haven't been given the reason. So that's where morale comes in. And right now there's an operation northwest of Kiev where, um, where Ukraine is, is trying to cut off one of the main spearheads of the Russian invasion. And it's, it's making some headway. And this is sort of critical because if you do that, you cut off your supply lines. The idea then isn't you're going to fight. You're going to try to you know, fight. Is you go in there and you basically say, all right, guys, you surrender and you give us your equipment and you walk away and we give you some money. They're paying $10,000 right now for, any, for a tank to any soldier that, that surrenders a tank. And it's happened at least once that we know of. So um, either you surrender or you're going to die. And what are you going to die for? And that's sort of the difference. If you know what you're dying for, if you're Ukrainian, you're sitting in Mariupol, right? This is the city in the, in the Azov Sea that is surrounded and, and will fall at some point, at some point um, soon, unfortunately. You know what you're dying for and you're willing to die for that. You, Russians don't have that. <laughs> they don't have that cause to say my life is worth, I mean, what are they, what, there's Nazis. I mean, they can see that there's no Nazis. I mean, they are on the ground. Where are the freaking Nazis? So this is this is the the big imbalance, and this is why you look at the number of troops, and I, I can say, yeah, Ukraine can actually field more troops. But one of the one of the sort of crazy facts about Iraq is that at any given time, only one percent of the population was actually fighting back against the American occupation, and you, we know how much trouble that caused. 1%. In Russia, you're looking at around 30%, 30 to 40% of the population will fight back. Women and children have evacuated mostly. The men have been left behind and the men are, are fighting back. And, and a lot of women. I don't want to discount that too. A lot of women. But you're talking the mass of the Ukrainian people are fighting back. And again, they're under-resourced. They don't have enough troops. And this is why Russia is now just bombing cities into rubble. Because they can't actually take them with their troops. They don't have enough troops. They have a lot of artillery, though. That they have. Lastly, what? how does this end? 
And and what is Putin's end game? Um, I mean, what where is this headed? So this is where people don't, this is what people don't like to hear is there is a scenario where Ukraine can take back land lost up to the to the pre-war boundaries. So we're we're you know we can get back to the status quo. A lot of people dying to get us to where we started in in on March twenty four when Russia invaded. Ukraine does not have the troops to go on the offensive in Crimea, which is Russian held, or the separatist Donbas region. It just does not have the offensive weapons. That is uh, aircraft, missiles, and uh, tanks, and um, and most of the weaponry that's coming in from the West is very specifically labeled defensive. You will see that underlined by almost every arms shipment. You know, U.S. is sending Ukraine defensive weapons. And that is a signal to Russia that, that um, there's a line there. We're not actually giving them the ability to go on the offensive. We're giving them the ability to defend themselves. If you mass your forces to, to attack, then that makes you open to slaughter by Russian artillery, missiles, and whatever aircraft they can, they can muster up. And, and Ukraine's a very flat open territory. So it is incredibly difficult. So at that point, Zelensky would have to commit to losing tens of thousands of his own troops for what? For Donbas and Crimea, right? And maybe maybe that's important enough for him and the Ukrainian people. It's not for me and you to decide that or for anybody else to decide that. But the reality is that the longer the war lasts, the more the Ukrainian economy crashes, the more that they're going to more civilians are going to die. And so at some point, my suspicion is that we are the best case scenario for both sides is that we just go back to the status quo. Russia keeps Crimea, the separatist separatist Donbas region remains, and then there's an uneasy ceasefire that that, you know, persists indefinitely and people don't like to hear that because everybody wants wants putin to you know be in the hague and being prosecuted for war crimes right who doesn't you know after the horrors that we have seen but the reality of the matter is that at some point Zelensky is going to have to decide whether it's really worth uh thousands more dead in order to take back territory and and so what i've argued is crimea is pretty much gone there's almost no way that russia gives that up without war because there's a major Russian naval base on the Crimea that gives it complete control of the Black Sea. So it, it, it strategically, Russia cannot survive without that in its mind. The Donbas region, which is a separatist region, it's an economic basket, basket case. So I, I'm arguing for the East German model, like let them have their autonomy and in 10, 15 years, they'll look at the West and they'll go like, oh, yeah, Western Ukraine, the Ukraine's like doing really well. And then let's look at Russia and Russia's a piece of crap. And then maybe they'll want to unify. I don't think it needs to be done by war. This is unsatisfying because everybody wants Ukraine to win back all its territory and to push Russia out and for Putin to be in The Hague and to end war crime trials against Russian generals. And yes, but we're not the ones sitting there dying. It's not our civilians, our sons and daughters and fathers and mothers and children that are dying under Russian bombs. And at some point, Ukraine's going to have to, I think, uh, 
it's going to have to make that difficult decision. As far as Putin's going to be concerned, I don't think he's going to have a choice. I think his forces are going to get pushed back to those pre, mostly to those pre-war boundaries. And, uh, and there's just not going to be, it'll be a dead in the water. So he can threaten to use chemical war uh, weapons. He can threaten to use nuclear weapons. Um, NATO's getting a lot friskier. Poland is talking about actually engaging militarily. I mean, things are, are getting really, really frothy in that region. And so I don't think Putin's going to have a lot of, a lot of options. And the U S is playing it very well by sort of, yeah, we're going to arm defensively, but we're going to, we're going to step back and um, yeah, we're going to fortify our border NATO countries, the Baltic areas, Poland, but they're not, they're not being belligerent towards, towards Moscow. And that's the right way to do it. And I'm so glad that we have Biden guidance from day one from the day he was saying russia's going to attack and nobody believed him because it was such a stupid thing to imagine that putin was that deluded to think that something like this could work biden has played it well folks follow all of the immense coverage at dailycoast.com marcos is writing about it regularly daily if not more other journalists there uh, to keep up with what's going on this has been very enlightening folks uh, you don't get this uh, on the mainstream news. That's why we invite you to become a part of the Daily Coast community if you've not already. Glad to have Marcos back. Glad to have Thursday Coast back. I know you all look forward to it. Thanks as always, buddy. Thanks. And I just want to say that traditional media is very good at covering the humanitarian aspect of the war, the refugees and uh, that because that they can understand. But how the military, the military component of it, I mean, CNN has been talking about Russia's within 10 kilometers of Kiev from day two of the war when Russia's been stuck. <laughs> it's, it's not threatening anybody. So I don't want to completely crap on because there's been some great coverage, but I actually very proud of our ability to really cover a angle of the war that nobody else does. So thank you so very much, Mark. No, thank you. Please keep it up. Thanks, Marcos. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, and wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.